Hello and welcome to the Eloquent in the Room, episode 21. I'm Rose Cooper. This is not a drill. Um, Last time I put out a trailer to let you know that this episode was forthcoming. I was thrown for a loop couple of weeks ago and I'm still recovering from that. A lot of stuff has hit the fan in Australian politics and wouldn't you know it, it's officially um, Sexual Abuse Awareness Month. Apparently last year was the first year Australia commemorated this particular um, awareness month. Uh, Apparently internationally it's been going for quite some time. There's something about commemorative months like I love celebrating uh, Bisexual Awareness Week and uh, other sort of days of visibility and raising awareness and stuff, mainly for other people. Um, uh, Like I do a lot of uh, trans visibility and awareness raising stuff on my Instagram and always uh, seeking to find uh, ways to elevate the conversation around um, anti-racism and all that sort of stuff. All the stuff that concerns me as a human being, but not me personally, because, you know, I'm privileged white, cis woman. Um, But fucking sexual abuse awareness month. (laughs) That's a, a weird place to be in because I as an activist want to raise awareness but at the same time I'm kind of saying this happened to me Um, and when I started the podcast I didn't really want to get stuck straight into the heavy shit like this happened to me anything I would disclose would be with a view to sharing it as a cautionary tale or as an inspirational tale or or anything to have open conversations about things that we don't normally talk about in polite company but I've launched myself in the last 12 months um, into the spotlight not in a huge way because I don't have a huge following but it's still feeling very exposing and it makes me second guess um, a lot of things because um, I am more self-aware than I used to be when I was first trying to make my way as a journalist uh, almost 30 years ago and all you wanted to do was get your name in the paper as having written something and like point to something that you did. I I wrote this. Um, I needed the validation a lot because I was a high school dropout. But now I am just trying to whittle down to the truth of things and say the things that may affect people in some way, maybe shine a light on things in some way. And I don't say that in any sort of grandiose or self-important way except to say this is the journey that I'm on as a human being, as a woman, as an artist, as a woman of a certain age, as a mother... Um, as a feminist, all that sort of stuff. So there's always going to be an undercurrent with me of um, vulnerability um, because I'm at an age where I'm quite okay being naked about being vulnerable. Um, Whereas when I was a younger person, I was just always okay with being naked, but not so much about being vulnerable. Which brings us to the topic of this week's podcast. Um, 
when uh, Gemma and I first uh, connected and thought about having a conversation around her recent court case, um, there was a few things to navigate in regards to the legality of what she was and wasn't able to disclose. Um, There was also just wanting to treat the subject as gently as possible while still being very, very open and forthcoming and candid. There's a lot of pussyfooting around and walking on eggshells with this topic. And there's no way around that. That's the fact of the matter. But in having these conversations, we really are endeavouring to decrease the taboo and the feeling of discomfort around the conversations. The conversations must be had. And this preamble also must be had just to paint the picture of how it all came together and fell apart and came together again. It's been tricky, tricky, tricky. So tricky. We booked the interview. It's Sexual Assault Awareness Raising Month. Uh, Australian politics is in the fucking shitter at the moment because of the behaviour of certain politicians. It's, it's a bit of a shit fight. Um, so bear all that in mind <laughs> while um, you listen to me introduce this podcast on this occasion. I'm choosing different opening and closing music. I think we need to create a mood. Sexual Assault Awareness Month is a mood. It's something that affects not just women, but children and people of all genders. It's ridiculously prevalent. Uh, The statistics vary when you uh, look at them. It's like one in three women will be affected by abuse or one in five. We know the statistics are appalling. The other statistics that are appalling is most or the majority of Uh, sex abuse cases are perpetrated by people that are known to the victim. And there is a degree of people that don't report, like a very, very high degree of people that don't report. And of those that do report and press charges, there's a very, very low guilty verdict ratio in amongst that. So... What we, ha- what we find ourselves with is that, oh, wow, someone is doing something. <laughs> There's noise in my house and I'm just going to plow on through right now. Um, so I just uh, ducked out and asked my family to keep it down a little bit. Just while I continue on this stream of consciousness thing I've got going on. Where the fuck was I? <laughs> Guys, um, the thing about this interview is that um, Gemma is a scholar. She's a university lecturer. When she decided to press charges, she thought long and hard about it and she got to experience firsthand everything that lives up to the reputation of the fact that rape cases are hard to prove. Now, I don't want to preempt it too much because... She's so fucking articulate and well-versed in the legal system herself uh, that 
it's a lot of it is just laid out in this interview. I don't have to preempt it. But what I do want to say is on the day of the recording, we had um, internet problems. There was a lot of freezing. My uh, headphone speakers weren't picking up um, the sound and I wasn't aware at the time that I was having software problems, which I only just recently sort of solved coming back to um, put the podcast together and edit it. So it's been a little bit of a nightmare <laughs> putting this together. Um, we talked for about three hours at least because I did ask questions around things that aren't things that she's really at liberty to talk about, things that um, require her to express an opinion about things. And after the conversation, she got back to me and she sort of said, can you just double check that, that I haven't said anything that could possibly be interpreted as in any way defamatory? There definitely wasn't. Um, but it did take a lot of editing because we did extrapolate and go into details about certain things, certain organisations that are mentioned in the interview. Um, we had philosophical discussions about how the way these cases are tried and the character witnesses that are used does seem to echo and amplify the problem with the patriarchy in all of this, um, the propensity for people to believe uh, abusers over victims based on the, the crime appearing to be out of character. Now, at the extreme end of the spectrum, some of the most famous cases of like serial killers and um, murderers and rapists and all sorts of stuff, like people who have been absolutely psychotic or deranged in some way, have had partners or friends or community networks or church affiliations where people who knew that person would swear blind that, that they weren't capable of doing that thing. So... <laughs> The crux of what's wrong with our system is the fact that we use character witnesses and people and their interpretation of status and stuff. It's a very, very confusing mess and I'm making a mess of explaining it to you. But without further ado, I will cross over to the interview. Having prepared you for the fact that it is quite heavily edited, I use my trusty sound effect to denote where it's been obviously edited, where I've taken out a bit. I've done that because we've circled back to something that we mentioned before. Let's now take a brief moment of silence for all the metaphors and analogies that were also lost in this massive edit. And there's moments where, you know, on the internet, you're talking to someone on Zoom or whatever, and they'll say something and there's a glitch and it's like, how are you today? And it, and it sort of reverberates. So for your ears, I've tried to eliminate as many of those as possible. Um, Gemma didn't have a mic, so while her audio is pretty good, the occasional word drops out. So I just want to prepare you for the fact that the facts and explanations and uh, articulateness of Gemma's 
expose is absolutely fucking compelling listening. So please do stick around and have a listen. Um, but yeah, I just felt like it was uh, pretty darn important uh, in this audio <laughs> realm to let you know that it's a little bit dodgy just here and there. Not overall, just a little bit dodgy here and there. Um, I don't think I'm going to wrap it up at the end, having done all this preamble. Um, I think I'll just uh, have a very, very quick sign off. And I would please encourage anybody to contact me or contact Gemma if you know someone who is in any way attached to anybody who is influential who might want to further elevate this particular part of the dialogue around sexual assault, prosecution, and what's wrong with the system. So without further ado, here's Gemma and I, kind of a third of the way through our conversation, we started out talking about consent and all that sort of stuff, so we'll go with the tinkling music as well. I'm all about the sound effects. Your experience is, I guess, rather unique in that you're aware, you're really aware of everything about the machinations of what's going on around you. So could you give me a bit of background of where where you are professionally and educationally and all that sort of stuff? Sure. So I'm a PhD candidate, but I also um, lecture, coordinate courses, design courses, a tutor at, uh, at a university. Uh, mostly what I teach is ethics. So I've had a very long career in ethics. It's, that's uh, I've did my first ethics courses formally in 1999. Mm-hmm. So that's been a while. Um, and my research is in mental health services in Australia now, and it's it used to be psychiatry in general. So I I'm a philosopher and a historian when it comes to psychiatry, uh, psychology, neuroscience, mental health services. Mm-hmm. I also teach a little bit of law. I teach law in the context of, of medical provision, like men, uh, medical professions. Yeah. Um, and I've also taught environmental law and environmental ethics, but I think that's less uh, less relevant here. So integrity is very important to me, but also I have uh, a lot of privilege when it comes to the ability to understand the complexity of moral issues, ethical issues, and I also have some training in law, so I can traverse that as well. That's amazing. Um, so what, what was the timeline of the situation, the, the events, and when you reported and, and all of that sort of stuff? How did that unfold? So I was assaulted in 2016, the end of 2016, and it was by a person that I knew that I'd had an, like some, a relationship with beforehand, very casual, but I'd had a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I straight away went into a shame spiral about yeah. it. I, I didn't want to tell anybody. I felt like silly, especially because I am so smart and, and, I, am, and I do have this kind of position um, in society, I felt like once I accepted that it had happened, I wanted to give him a chance to uh, explain to me how he saw the event because I know there can be differing, like, understandings and experiences of, of these sorts of things and 
I wanted to sort it out without going anywhere formal because I'd been assaulted um, a couple of times before, but most significantly when I was 19. Mm. And when I was 19, I didn't go to the police because I was actually very inebriated for that one. Um, But I did uh, become very public about what had happened in the context of a university club like society and it caused a lot of fallout. So I wanted to just kind of give this person a chance to basically repair things with me directly. So in April of 2017, I confronted him. I tried to get him to talk to me a lot before that and he kept brushing me off. Mm. And in April, I uh, just ended up at an event with him and I confronted him about it and he said to me, um, he said, uh, I explained what happened and he said, you should have pushed me off harder. And then and then he said uh, the, a couple of other things that indicated that he had no remorse um, and that he was only concerned that I was going to tell other people and ruin his reputation. Mm. So I said, you know, what I want from you is an apology. And I went, well, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry that this happened and that this is not the me that I tell other people. Mm. Um, it's real, that kind of thing. Um, after that, I then thought, well, he had, did say sorry, but it never sat right with me, like, because he didn't offer that freely. That wasn't what originally came out of his mouth. Mm. And so for the next two years, about two years, at this back and forth where every now and again he and I would cross paths and I would say, like, can you, can you like, work with me on this because I'm not really happy with how this went. Um, and he would tell me all about his health problems. Oh, this happened the first time I talked to him too. Tell, tell me all about his health problems, problems with his family, problems with his life circumstances, and basically make me feel sorry for him. Mm-hmm. And I would walk away going, oh, yeah, maybe I was a bit, like, mean to bring this up again. He's really struggling. I'll leave it be for now. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also very scared of him. You know, I couldn't. Uh, can't really talk about why, but he but he wasn't a safe person. Mm-hmm. So it was only um, at the end of 2018, uh, after having an interaction with him online where I thought he was acting very erratically and I showed a complete strange, like a, a friend of mine who had no, I, no information about what had happened, I showed him messages that, that this person had sent me and he said, are you safe? Does this person know where you live? And so after that, I uh, went to the police and it took a year and a half before I ended up in court. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So in the case of uh, a delay in reporting, um, what kind of evidence does the police sort of ask you to give them apart from a statement? How does that work? Yeah, sure. So it is obviously harder if there is a delay. You have to explain the delay. Um, so if you have any evidence to do with why the delay is as it is, I, which, I, which I did, which didn't actually end up being allowed in court, but I did have evidence as to why there was a delay. Um, I also had medical records. So mm. I had gone to my doctor. I had... I'd had a certain surgery while in the middle of seeing him, which prevent, which would prevent me doing what he did to me. Mm. Um, so I had that medical reports, I had psychologist reports, but I also had told trusted friends. Mm. So that's so they became witnesses then mm. to 
say, yes, she told me this and the story hasn't changed, it's been this. There's not a lot of physical evidence. Um, I did actually take some photos of his room on the, on the morning after it happened, but other than that, not any physical evidence. But they basically have to judge your character and whether they think, yeah, she's not just making this up out of the blue um, and she's very consistent with this story and there's no reason for her to lie, essentially. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit interesting. You go into a police station, the first police officer I saw said oh, he was very rude and he was like, why did you leave it this long? People are such a pain and, like, it was actually quite really? awful. Wow. Yeah, but then he said, I'm getting the sexual assault specialist. You wait here. Such a pain. Like, he, he was obviously not well-versed in this particular part of the law. Wow. But the person who I did actually make a statement to was lovely. Mm. But it had to be passed on to a different police station because of where it happened. Then I got moved to a female police officer who was also amazing and then she started collecting more evidence. You've made a statement and pressed charges. What happens next? Well, before the charges get pressed, you get asked a ton of times if you really want to go forward with it. Every victim survivor who's gone to the police knows that this happens, that at every point you're told this is going to be really hard. Are you sure? Uh, are you absolutely sure you want me to keep going? This You probably won't win the case. These cases are impossible to win. Um, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? So you have to say yes at least 20 times to that before that person ever gets charged. Do you think there's uh, levels to why they ask you that question or is there only the one? Are they trying to dissuade you for the benefit of not clogging the system or for your benefit of not putting yourself through it? For your benefit. Well, yeah. yeah. I, I never got the sense that they were trying, trying to dissuade me because they thought that I wasn't telling the truth, that the, that was never um, a sense that I got. Although I know that I come across very in a very trustworthy manner and um, can articulate myself and was very clear about what happened. I, yeah, so I never got the sense that they were trying to dissuade me in in a kind of nefarious way, like, um, but they were trying to make sure that I was willing to go through what would be a traumatic process. Mm. Um, they knew every step of it would be hard because they deal with this every day. And they, and even, even when it did actually get to the point that it was prosecuted and I was dealing with the Department of Public Prosecutions, the DPP, they were also saying the same things even though they were at the same time encouraging me to keep going with it. Mm. They were just saying, just so you know, like we lose these cases every day. Um, so once so once it got to a head, the police officer that I was working with um, arrested the person. Um, he was interviewed and he responded to uh, questions that were put to him. Um, I, as a, as a victim of a crime, you don't actually get any of the material um, from your case other than your own statement. So I I've never seen um, the interview with him, nor do I have a transcript of it. So, so they interviewed him and then arrested him. Then once he was arrested, he was placed on bail. So he had to report to the police twice a week uh, and not leave the state or anything without telling them, without permission Right. Um, but they also placed, they, I didn't ask for this, but they also placed an apprehended domestic violence order against him mm. um, on my behalf and told me that they thought that he was a threat to my safety and that I should be very careful. 
Yeah. So how did that feel at the time? I think at the time that made me feel a little nervous. I was very, I was very angry that obviously he'd said whatever he'd said uh, had made it um, clear to them that he wasn't safe. And from what I know from the court transcript now, what he did do was try and frame it as um, that I wasn't just a liar, but that I was in love with him and, and, and angry that he wasn't in love with me and, mm. and that I slept with everybody and like all this kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 They've probably experienced similar reactions and, and can tell the nuances of, you know, people who react a certain way implies a certain level of guilt just because they're throwing it straight back to the other person rather than asking what, what you know, actually asking questions <laughs> around or yeah. having any concern for your well-being or any of those things. Yeah. Mm. For sure. And and importantly, he never ever denied that that what happened happened. He just denied that there was a lack of consent. How do they prepare you for how things are gonna play out? Well, this is where it gets like you end up in limbo. Mm. So you're told don't talk to anybody about it, other than a counselor, of course. But um don't talk to any of your friends. Any of the people who are going to be character witnesses, which are, of course, my trusted friends, <laughs> wasn't allowed to talk to any of them. Wasn't uh, They cautioned me against speaking publicly because it could affect the case, and then you just wait. Eventually, you know, the DPP reaches out to you and you meet with people, but uh, the problem is that the DPP is very, um, as you mentioned already, there's a backlog with these cases, So um, and the DPP is overworked. So my solicitor and my um, barrister changed at least three times during the process and the solicitor and the barrister that I had are amazing but they were only assigned to my case the week before it was actually going to be tried in court. So whilst I spoke to a lot of people at the DPP, I didn't, none of the people that I spoke to (laughs) leading up to the case were actually people in the room. And how did that feel? At first I was upset about that. I did actually prefer the people that I got in the end, so in oh, that okay. sense it was okay. Mm-hmm. But um, but I do feel that the lack of time that they had to prepare for the case was a problem and I feel like they let certain things kind of slip Is there as anything, a result of it, yeah. Was there anything standard procedure about that or just it was an unfortunate circumstance? No, I, I was told that that's very regular. Yeah, well, that's something that obviously yeah. needs to change. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, I mean, they just need to be better funded. Basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that just that just blows me away that um, something that requires the utmost trust seems to be you need to develop some sort of a, a relationship and simpatico before you even start and, and appear as a a team, a real team rather than, um, and this is, what was your name again? Um, yeah. <laughs> How does it like? Yeah. So as I said, uh, the, the victim is just, they're just a witness like that. They're, they're called a witness that you're not actually called a victim and you're not central to the case. Actually, you're, you're dissuaded from, um, being in the room. 
yeah. for most of it. So you don't see any of the documents that the prosecution has and you don't see any of the documents that the defence has. That's it. How did it work? Okay, so before, so beforehand I was asked whether I wanted to be in a separate room, like a separate building and videoed in or if I wanted to be in the actual room with him. And I thought I did want to be in the room with him Mm. And then at the last minute, I just decided, mm, I don't know if I do want to be in the same space as him, actually. Yeah. So I did. Um, so I did give my evidence from another space. Mm. So I went there beforehand. I was assigned someone from witness assistance. Mm-hmm. So they had talked to me. That was the same person the whole way through. So that was actually quite early in the in the um, process with the DPP. They assigned me this a, a particular woman, and she. Um, was basically a support person for me, yeah. and then just before the case, I was assigned one of the um, one of the volunteers who do that witness assistance stuff, and she sat in the room with me during um, me giving my uh, testimony. And base, yeah, basically you just wait. So the the first day, um, the lawyer, it, the court case didn't actually start. The lawyers were just deciding what together, like both sides together, what would be included and what would be excluded as evidence. I think um, people don't realise that about court cases unless they've been through them, that a lot of things get excluded as evidence. So there's a lot that you can't talk about when you're on the stand and it makes a big difference to how you're understood. So, for instance, I couldn't explain why I was scared of him. I just had to say I was scared. Is that kind of because it, it it is, but in the eyes of the law it's not relevant to the events of that they're talking about. So each each part of your relationship is given a, a separate allocation for admissible evidence. I'm trying to sort of wrap my brain about how they're then you you're not allowed to characterize things. Kind of stuff. You, know, you can only just state the facts. Yeah, exactly, and and vice versa, right? So, for instance... I was going to say, I can imagine that would would particularly in regards to things that you felt in your heart and mind needed to be, people needed to know about how you felt or or about the thing. Um, How how were you able to keep that in check while, while you were going through it or were you able to keep it in check? Dealing with your emotions in that moment I was able to keep it in check but I can understand why you wouldn't Mm. be able to like when I was being cross-examined that me being scared thing came up and his barrister pushed me on that Mm. and uh, and said you know but why like you know here he is he's sick he presented himself as ill anyway very Harvey Weinstein kind of (laughs) decision there but anyway he um you know why were you scared of him and I, um, I hesitated and, I, and she said, just answer the question. Like she pushed it and I said, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to decide how to answer it given that this covers evidence that's excluded. Mm. And, she, and then she cut me off and said uh, very quickly and said, just answer the question. And I said, actually, you have to give me a moment to think about it. And then I just sat there for a moment, even though I knew how I was going to answer at that point. Mm. I think she wasn't pushing me on why I was scared. She was pushing me on why I didn't leave on that evening because I was scared of him. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And isn't that kind of supposedly badgering the witness? Aren't they, isn't someone supposed to intervene if, if someone's actually pressuring you to 
answer t- in a timely manner when you deserve to take the, as much time as you want? I would, yeah, I would say so, except that I did speak up for myself. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I didn't have a chance. Yeah, I Although think- I just about to object and like, I got this. <laughs> yeah, I did get asked to not speak over the top of her at one point. Mm. And that, that was quite fun. I did apologise mm. to the judge. The actually giving evidence is quite, um, I, I found it quite okay. Uh, it's, it's embarrassing like I, to know that there are a lot of strangers sitting in this room just listening to like, quite graphic details of your sex life is not pleasant. Mm. Um, I'm a pretty private person when it comes to those things too, so it, it's it felt very uncomfortable. I did notice I was kind of laughing at a couple of things, just yeah. nervously. Yeah, I get that. Um, but for the most part, that was fine. You're just going through you know, your statements, essentially. The cross-examination was what I was warned about. That was where I was told, this is going to be horrible. This is always horrible. She's not going to be nice to you. Uh, just kind of steal yourself for a long ride, essentially. I was told that mostly they take a couple of days of cross-examination they try and grind you down in my case it only lasted an hour and a half and it was that quick because basically I'm a trained philosopher and the only thing that can come against a lawyer is a trained philosopher we're both as good at argument as each other so essentially everything she put to to me which was all just fabricated stuff it was really graphic um gratuitous yeah it was it was a story of a romance that didn't happen and every so every time she said suggested something I was like no and here's why that that's just nonsensical and she just finished very abruptly Mm. and then got off the stand Uh, I I think maybe I just the longer I was on the stand the less she seemed like she was presenting anything believable yeah so afterwards the DPP the, the um, police officer and the witness assistants, all of them said that was very unusual and it was because you were good. Mm. Basically, she just wanted to get you off the stand. So at least I know in that sense that there's nothing more that I could have personally done and then there's another cross, there's a an, another examination if, if your barrister wants to ask you something else, which is usually just clarificatory. And then that's done. And then there's a few days of your witnesses, a few days of his defence. One of the problems is that the defence doesn't actually have to give the prosecution any of their information uh, before court, but the prosecution has to give the defence everything. Mm. So they have full knowledge of what you're going to present. You have no knowledge of what they're going to, so you can't prepare for it. So what's the rationale or the the reason for, for that, if there is one? (laughs) That seems really arbitrary. I think that is one of the most problematic parts of the criminal justice system as we have it now. And I don't know why that's originally in place. I don't. Like I understand, for instance, some of the exclusion of evidence. Um, For instance, uh, one of the things that was excluded from evidence was my uh, psychologist reports, but also his And one of the reasons that that is the case is that sexual assault is the only type of criminal case, actually the only type of of court case, that evidence of that sort is excluded. They cannot request your um, medical reports unless you offer them. Mm -hmm. And the defence cannot actually request them. They're private. 
and in no other criminal case is that the case. The, a, a judge can request them and you have to give them to the judge in every other kind of case. And the reason that is is because that people fought for it. Essentially, if, a, well, you would have seen with the Christian Porter stuff, if someone has um, any kind of mental distress or illness, it can be totally used against them yeah. in, a court, in a court of law, even if that mental distress is caused by the actual event. Yeah. Um, so, so all of it was excluded almost on, um, on kind of ideological grounds, and even though in my case it would have actually been helpful. Mm, yeah. Because things, yeah. That, things that can't be measured, isn't it? Like it, it, you kind of have to treat everybody as a, you know, rational, calm individual for the purposes of just, I don't know, everybody has to work off the same template. But, oh, gosh. Yeah, court cases are drag on forever if it was, if everything was admissible, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And the other... Um, the other thing that you're not allowed to bring in as prosecution is character evidence. Mm. So it's, you've got to judge the case on its merits. So you also can't have any previous relationships being involved in the case, any previous um, cases of, like, harassment or assault or anything. Uh, so, for instance, one of the people that the police talked to had experienced sexual harassment uh, from this from this person yeah, and uh, her evidence was excluded because it was about a previous incident. Mm. So you're and and that speaks to character. So you're not allowed to bring in character as a prosecution, um, and that's in the Evidence Act. But in the Evidence Act on character, it does give the defence an opportunity to bring in character. That's only after the prosecution has finished. Uh, their case, and they're allowed to bring it in on their own terms. Is it so in these kind of cases? Only in uh, just any, any case, any case. So this is just the Evidence Act for all criminal cases in, in New South Wales. I'm not sure I entirely understand it or, or why. I understand why characters should be excluded. Mm. I do think once you start opening up character, then it becomes uh, not just he said, she said, she said, it's who's got the most influential friends, yeah. who's got the best kind of looking online presence. And then that becomes, uh, you're not actually judging the incident on its own merits, you're judging it based on things that are actually quite irrelevant. Mm. So why the defence should be allowed to bring it in at all, I'm not sure. That's I actually think it should be excluded altogether. I agree. I agree. It, it seems mostly so in the case of sexual assault because we've finally gotten to the stage where people are realising that what she was wearing and what her sexual past and all that sort of stuff is irrelevant to a crime being committed against a human being who is, for all intents and purposes, as valid and wonderful as every other human being on the planet regardless of what their past has been. And it doesn't apply to the... The accused. So they're allowed to bring in character about them. That I mean, that's what happened in my case. Mm. So he didn't bring any. They, the defense didn't bring in any in, in any character evidence about me. That wouldn't have worked, to be honest. Like I look very good on paper. Yeah. So uh, they brought in character evidence about him. Now he doesn't actually look good on paper, but they can do it within their own on their own terms. Mm. So. For instance, they didn't bring in anything to do with his social media. One look at his social media and you would decide that this person is a problematic person. So they didn't bring in that. What 
what they had instead was that they had character witnesses and they had character witnesses that knew a certain amount of information about the case and they knew that we didn't have character witnesses in our, we, I say we, but I mean the prosecution, the DPP didn't have any character witnesses in our brief that matched their, their character um, witnesses. So we wouldn't be able to respond in kind. They had seven people stand up, not knowing me, Mm. Uh, many of them haven't hadn't actually even read the crown case so they didn't know what I claimed and they just got to say whatever they like mm. so they just said he's a really great guy he's done all these amazing things and I don't think he could have done this yeah and it was just one person after the other so you read the stack letter where you, you weren't a witness to their testimony or how did that work Co- all the lockdowns happened midway through my case <laughs> uh, was told, you know, probably don't come in. Um, and I'm glad I didn't because I actually wouldn't have been able to handle at all. It was hard enough to read the transcripts later. What kinds of um, testimonies were they and based on questions about what to do with any part of his character or after reading it, did you wonder if it was even relevant? I didn't think any of it was relevant. Yeah. So so they basically asked each witness what their occupation was which I've not been allowed to be asked the defense was so actually the the person who assaulted me was allowed to talk about his occupation but I was not they had found people who had occupations that sounded good Mm. the first one was a doctor he was actually um, videoed in from hospital and so he was I don't know if he was in scrubs or what but he was actually in a hospital setting about to do something with surgery and he was asked, do you know this person? Have you read the Crown case? No, I haven't. Do you think this is something this person would do? Almost all the other ones were asked if they'd ever seen him be aggressive or violent or heard about him being either of those things, and they all said no. And then apart from that, they were asked about, like, how they met him, what they'd done together, whether they'd worked together. Um, most of them... Um, talked about burning seed and burning man Mm. Uh, and one went on at length about the burning man principles and how the 11th principle of burning man is consent and that this person had been really involved in conversations about consent and so there's absolutely no way that he could have uh, done that. The doctor was asked uh, his ability to handle alcohol which I think was a totally inappropriate question given it was... um, So the doctor... The doctor is a characteristic based on being his friend, not his physician. And what I don't understand is why they ask a question that calls for him to speculate. I've watched enough <laughs> law shows on TV that you dismiss speculation because it's an opinion. It's not mm-hmm. anything to do with facts. That's, that's Yeah, it was all speculation on all of their parts, right? Um, it wasn't checked because it was character evidence evidence of character it's just you know do you think this is a good guy there was one person who uh was very adamant that he had never seen this person act badly towards any women um it was one of the only ones that my barristers were really able to cross-examine with any kind of depth but my barrister asked him if he'd ever seen him have sex with women and then he he said, yes, we've had group sex together, which I don't, like, I wasn't, I mean, how irrelevant is that? And and 
what? <laughs> um, yeah. Another one of the, the character witnesses, which I didn't think was very useful one, um, uh, she was the only person who was not involved in Burning Seed or Burning Man, was actually someone who'd ha- also had a previous relationship with him as well. But it was just it, irrelevant. Like I wasn't allowed to bring in my ex that thinks I'm a great person. I actually wasn't allowed to bring in the many people who don't think this that uh, my the person who assaulted me is a great person. It was very one-sided and the DPP said they'd never seen anyone bring in that many character witnesses, that it was relentless is the word that they used. They said the only other time they'd seen that um, and it was restricted, always restricted to just two people was for police officers mm. who've been accused of stuff. And there's a lot of that um, as well. Yeah, and you can see, you know, you get other police officers to say, no, he's a very, you know, upstanding police officer. They said most people don't use character witnesses because, um, because people will get on the stand and then feel all of a sudden that they can't, you know, lie or whatever. Yeah, they said to, to have that many people just kind of unabashedly claiming that he was this brilliant, amazing, community-minded, not in any way aggressive or violent person, just from reading what he said to the police, he is an aggressive person. That's not that's not in question. When the jury is making their decision, they were instructed by the judge that they did, did have to include those testimonies in their decision. So how much of the um, his defence was answering questions about the event itself? Very little. It was mostly about his health issues, his family issues, his community involvement, and that was it. So he wasn't actually called to give any evidence or tell any story around whether it could or couldn't have happened? No, he still was. It just wasn't the main part of what he was being asked to do. My barrister obviously did his job, um, did question him. And actually, it took me a long time to read his testimony because I just felt like it would make me feel uncomfortable. Mm. But when I read it, I read it a few weeks ago, um, my barrister did get him to the point where he said that he had lied to both me and the police in different Mm -hmm. contexts. Mm. And so I think if the case had finished after that, before the character witnesses, um, I would have had an excellent opportunity of winning it. Mm. But, you know, reasonable doubt, that's a fairly low bar and you only need, you know, a few people to get up and go, no, he's such a great guy. Uh, Like how long did it take for um, between the court case starting and and to look at finding a verdict? Two weeks. Um, They did ask me if I wanted to be there but I would have had to travel in for it. Mm. and I am really glad that I said no, mm. I don't want to be there mm. because I broke down. So I'm very glad that I did not mm. have to do that in front mm. of the people mm. uh, on on one hand. On the other hand, I do wish the jury had seen that, mm. that they'd made this decision and that it affected somebody, like, very deeply. On the other hand, I was a total mess. So, <laughs> so I, I'm glad I was at home. Yeah, so um, when the verdict is rendered, is there someone, like whether it's the presiding judge or whatever, that actually says anything to tie up the loose ends or to to um, tell that the jury, you know, just 
just say anything, whether it's to you or to the defendant or anything in regards to the way um, the situation came about or, you know, it seems like people, there should be some sort of philosophical moment when something like that happens and then comes to a close. I obviously watch too much TV, but it's like, it just seems like, um, (laughs) no, what kind of debrief do you get to have and all that sort of stuff? Um, none, if it's a jury case. So if it's a, if it's a judge only case, they do have to give an explanation for their decision. So you get that at least, um, juries don't have to, so you get nothing. It's just, it just ends. Yeah. Um, obviously my barrister called me, so I got to speak to my barrister and my solicitor and they were, they were, you know, also upset. I've since talked to my barrister quite a number of times and, and my sister, and they're both really amazing people. They just get not guilty verdicts every day. The last time I talked to my barrister, he said he'd had two in the morning and we were speaking around lunchtime. Mm. And he, he just said this is just, real, this is just every day. And he, he said this is because the law is broken. It is not because we're not good at our jobs. Yeah. It is because there's just no way to win this. Everybody deserves a defence. Yeah, but my yeah, my solicitor and my and my bar, my barrister encouraged me to 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 be involved in advocacy. As, as did witness assistants. Witness assistant called me. Assistants called me, and they had a long conversation with me. Um, they were really upset that it, ha- it happened too. They just thought, out of every case that they'd seen, that I was the strongest witness that they had ever seen. Yeah, and so they um, so they were just like, I don't. I don't know how people can win this. If if they're expected to be better than you, how is that possible? Yeah. Like the only people who, anecdotally, the only people that win these cases are tend to be people where the uh, person who has assaulted them is a stranger mm. to them, right? So that fits the narrative that we have that rapists are these like... Boogeymen. Boogeymen, yeah. yeah. They're people that we don't know that are bad rather than, you know, most assault happening but um, at the hands of people that are very well known to the yeah. victim survivor. People mm. are really quick to jump to the conclusion that there has to be some sort of wronged party or, or um, you know, a woman scorned or, or some of that fucking bullshit. What does this qualify as given that you have a, a prior um relationship or whatever is it does that affect the way the wording of the so is it common assault or what's what's the actual charge so there's the levels are common assault indecent assault sexual assault aggravated sexual assault Mm. and then there's other ones for like multiple instances of sexual assault so you're talking about where people have been abused over time yeah and there's also domestic violence separate to that so uh what what my uh, um abuser was charged with was uh, aggravated sexual assault mm-hmm. because it was violent with the option for the jury to just decide that it was sexual assault rather than aggravated sexual assault just because of the time between when I went to the uh, police mm. um, that I didn't have, like, physical evidence of the yeah. physical assault, right? During the kind of the process of the DPP handling it and it going through the local courts up to the district courts and so on, the defence... Um, usually does and did in my case put forward a plea deal but the plea deal that his barrister offered was common assault common assault is pretty much like someone's pushed you Mm. you know like 
it's not even well they've hit you but just sounds like, like something that would only average incur a fine of, of some kind maybe yes yeah and basically the DPP said in order to accept that plea deal I'd basically have to change my story entirely to mm. yeah we were there and he just pushed me a bit hard mm. and mm. I don't know just pushed me around a bit which is obviously not what happened but the one thing that does work in our system is victim services so I was I was told to get counselling through victim services because it would help in the case if they did use the psychological um, reports. Mm-hmm. So I did go on the victim services website and request counselling and I must have checked when I did this um, that I would also be applying for a recognition payment. Mm-hmm. So the recognition payment is um, it's in place to allow victims of crime to avoid going through the civil courts which is what you could do afterwards, which happens a lot in America, Mm. to sue the person Mm. who has assaulted you for the crime, right? Mm. So instead of doing that, you can ask the government to pay you a a recognition payment. Mm. They don't just give it for no reason. They do, um, they get all the police reports. They get all of the evidence. They don't get any evidence excluded. They can see everything. And then they have independent assessors who produce reports, um, like, you know, several pages reports, which decide whether you are a victim of crime, how serious it is, and what band you'll be um, put in, um, and what, how much money you will receive. And mine was aggravated sexual assault, uh, the top payment, and it was successful. So... That actually came through before the court case. So you can't use that. Compensation. Oh, a whole different department. So, yeah, well, the taxpayer paid for his crime. Mm. Yeah. He didn't pay for his crime, but the taxpayer did. Um, That seems to be the the ultimate patriarchal enabling insult in my mind, just hearing that, that the public paid for his crime. So so the the recognition there is that you have suffered and that you have, you, the experience that you had is real. But because yep. the jury found otherwise, that doesn't mean you weren't telling the truth. It's kind of a, a dichotomy. It is. And... One of the problems that I think is inherent in the system is that um, that uh, character evidence stuff that I was talking about. If you have a prior record, like if you've assaulted someone before, you actually can't bring in character evidence. That's mm. it's only for people who don't have prior records. Mm. Um, but if he's never going to get a record, mm. then he can keep doing that mm. every time. Mm. And it's just a clean slate every time. Mm. And this report, which you know, victim services, I mean, it's quite, um, right, so it is legitimising to read that someone has decided that, um, you know, that I am the victim of an act of violence Mm. uh, and that, you know, that that resulted in physical and psychological harm, et cetera. It's done on the balance of probabilities and you can't bring this report in as evidence in your court case. Like, I I don't want to bring you down or trigger you in any way, but it's so heartbreaking to hear it, to hear that 
that is the state of it's like parallel universes that that don't make any sense i think i think the victim services stuff is essentially people within the system who've seen this happen to victims over and over again Mm. trying to find a way to get around the system so that they can support the victims in some way i I know a little bit of the history behind it and it was after a particularly landmark case where someone had sued the government for compensation Mm. and one of the reasons the recognition payments exist is to avoid court cases. You have to go go through a court case in order to get compensation, that you just get compensation um, Mm. through this process. But also after after my court case, Mm. uh, the processes around this uh, changed and now the victim has to collate all of the information themselves and um, send it to victim services in a particular format, which I think is crap. Mm. I mean, that's the last thing you want to do. And also you don't have access to it as the victim. Mm. You simply don't. So I guess you have to wait until after the court case and then you have to, after the court case, just say you've got not guilty like me and you're a mess then you're meant to look over all your documents and ask someone else to believe you. Please believe me. Like at least in my case, I didn't. I didn't feel like I was ever asking that. Yeah. I. I you know. I. I sort of applied by accident. I don't. <laughs> that sounds silly, but I did. Um, so and, had you not yeah. been compensated, you you would have incurred court costs and barrister costs and and all that sort of. No. No, no. So the DPP, you're just, again, you're just a witness. So it's actually the government taking him to court and you don't have to pay anything. Okay. In that regard, that's good. Um, Some people end up, especially in domestic violence cases, they do end up taking it to court by themselves without the DPP. And those are, it's hard to know how successful that is. Mm. Yeah. It's it's kind of better if the government's charging you with a criminal act, right? So that's... Yeah, it's an independent opinion that something has taken place. The only thing they asked the judge was um, midway through their deliberations, they asked if they could believe what he said to the police officer when he was arrested rather than any of the number of things that he said which contradicted that afterwards, which I, I mean, just that question annoys me. Mm. <laughs> like, so you recognise that he's a liar. Mm. You recognise that he's a liar and not one. This court case isn't about me all of a sudden. It's about feeling sorry for this guy to begin with. I mean, I remember the actually the day of the verdict. My barrister said what the verdict was and I said, oh, that's so disappointing. And then he started talking and then I said something and then I went, oh, my God, he can just do it to somebody else. And then I just broke down. Mm. I was like, he can just do it to somebody else. Mm. he's going to do it to somebody else it's like that's that's so horrible and they're going to get exactly the same thing if they bring it to court Mm. um because he knows now how to do it one of my main motivations for going to court was actually to be able to speak about it publicly I don't know what's possible in terms of changing the law there have been some reforms to sexual assault um cases and the way in which they're conducted since my court case um, and they all look very positive I think the criminal justice system needs to overhaul needs to overhaul in in regards to sexual assault because beyond reasonable doubt for a crime that's so utterly private mm. is uh, I mean it's it's just not realistic mm. and 
but you also have to create, you also have to retain a system in which, you know, a person is allowed a defence. The burden of proof should actually run both directions. That you should actually also, the defence should also have to also show why you would lie, mm. why you would put yourself through this awful, long, torturous, like uh, re-traumatising uh, experience for nothing. Mm. Like why would you do that? Mm. Um, but I think that that change is a long way off. So my much more um, doable change is to prevent anything to do with character evidence coming into these cases, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I want to see changed. I don't want I don't want anyone else to have a not guilty because a whole bunch of people stood up and said that their rapist was a good guy. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's just no part of that is it produces justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that is an aim, but that uh, again, I need to work with people on that, and I've only just recently, as you said, gotten the opportunity to speak publicly about it. So the other thing that I've been fighting for the past year and I really have been unsuccessful in it and I'm going to continue fighting it as a medical ethicist Mm. is that I don't think it was appropriate for the doctor to do Mm. what he... Most of the witnesses were medical professionals. I just think it was the worst in the case of the doctor. Mm. Um, and I don't think medical professionals at all should be giving character evidence in which they state their occupation. Their occupation should not come into it ever unless they are giving uh, expert testimony, which there are, like, codes of conduct around. Why on earth should it matter what a medical professional thinks their friend is like? The only thing that that does is a kind of status bias, produces status bias, of course, you know. People will go, well, he's a doctor. He wouldn't lie. No, he, he wouldn't have friends that would rape people. Why would he have that? He's a doctor uh, in this yeah. case, um, you know. And is, there any that, is any of that, like, it seems like a lot is presumed just by the status of these character witnesses, but is there anything that, that comes out of the barrister's mouth or whatever that actually spoon-feeds these ideas to the jury, like, and... How, you know, like actually says what you say, how could this person who has friends like this? No. So they just hope that the jury will have the status bias that we all do. Yeah. Mm. And, of course, they do, right? Mm. So, so I made a complaint to the HCCC, the Healthcare Complaints Commission, about this. Um, and that was towards the start of last year. And they rejected the complaint. They said there was nothing that he was allowed to say whatever he liked in court in that context, that they didn't have any specific regulation about it. So then I drafted an appeal to that um, decision um, and I drafted that with another medical ethicist and we went through codes of conduct for medical professionals. I mean, I actually teach future nurses medical ethics and teach them about professionalism and stuff. So I'm very, this is not just a a personal interest, it's a professional interest for me. So we went through, wrote a very convincing piece Mm. um, and had the most, what would I say, unsatisfactory surface-level response to it, didn't even address most of our concerns from the HCCC. I have then moved that complaint to another medical profession organization but not received a response from that so just push for change in that way I do have the support of a fair few medical professionals doing that so um yeah that's one thing I want to push for 
And then the other stuff that I've been doing is really about burning seed and burning man mm. um, because I thought it was an inappropriate use of their organisation in a court setting because mm. it was basically he's involved with burning seed and burning man, therefore he didn't rape. That was mm. the argument put. And to most of the jurors and to my barrister, and solicitor, they didn't really know what burning seed or burning man was. So what the person was saying, the people were saying about it, you know, it's this amazing community and blah, 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 I was so progressive. Um, they sort of had to just take that on their word rather than understanding that burning man and burning seed are essentially just a party and any principles are just ideals. They're not things that people embody all the time. Um, there is no reason Burning Man and Burning Seed should have been involved in my court case in any way. But look, it sounds like everything kind of weaved a hypnotic spell uh, in swaying people's opinion on, on something because, as you said, your witness testimony was, you know, given, um, you know, a big tick in regards to credibility how do we get out from under from that? So what's your plan of attack in regards to how to heal from it personally, but also what what can be done? What can, like, mm. there's so many hills you're surrounded by. Is there any sort of feeling within you that there is a, an attainable goal, like a definite attainable goal of change that you can affect and are willing to, like, forge ahead with because talking to you is one thing but it's nothing if I'm not getting behind what you're doing and doing everything I can to help you draw attention to what you plan to do and what you want to do to affect change yeah good question it's been difficult to work out what I wanted to do especially given the past few weeks in Australia mm. um, I think I had a really clear idea and now I'm less clear um, and the reason I'm less clear is just because you're exhausted. <laughs> I'm exhausted. Yeah, I really am. Okay. And, you know, I've, I've in the best possible position I could have been in relation to this kind of case, right? If, you, if you're not white, if you're not well-educated, if you're not, like, very articulate, if you don't have this background in ethics and law, if you can't hold yourself um, uh, against some pretty serious, like, uh, cross-examination, mm -hmm. if you don't have a big support network, if you don't have English as your first language, I mean, how on earth are you going to win this? Like, there's not, you're not is the answer, right? Mm -hmm. You're not even going, you're probably not even going to get to the corp um, stage. You're going to be dissuaded. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think it is actually right for, the, I think that it annoys women a lot and our survivors as well not just women but when people go to the police and they say yeah but you don't really want to take this to court do you mm. it feels like they're dismissing you but what they're doing genuinely is telling you that this is this is very 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 hard to fight mm. and that they've judged from what they've just seen right now that you're not you don't have the strength of character to fight this if I'm at the point where I'm having days that I don't want to keep going then that's a really bad indication of what it would be like for many other people. And it's not set out of ego, it's set out of actual care. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah care for myself as well. So that I do, I do want to keep pushing for change in any progressive community. Like you and I met through um, Art Party, essentially. 
Mm. And one of the good things about Art Party was that it was run by someone who took no shit from anybody. Yeah. And to that person's credit, they actually barred my my um, abuser from Art Party. Mm. Um, and right. that was before I met him. Like that was a very safe space. And what you need is that strong leadership, right, in these progressive communities that doesn't say, oh, this doesn't happen here, mm. that fully accepts that it does happen here. Mm. It probably happens there more than anywhere else, actually, because there's a lot more women around those spaces. Um, I think more generally we need to have more conversations about the fact that it doesn't matter how well you know somebody, they could sexually assault somebody else. Absolutely. That's possible. Absolutely. And that it, it could be your best friend, you feel like you know them deeply, and then in private they've turned around and done something like that. Mm. Mm. And so... And it could, should, the thing is yeah. it could be out of character. That's not the point. Yep. That's, it could be yep. completely out of character. Could That person could be having the worst day or whatever, and, and the, the thing is that's the point, and particularly when it's people who are known to each other. Um, the, the impulse of certain situations and drinking and, and all this sort of stuff, but a crime is a crime has been committed. It is a crime, like drinking and driving is a crime. Yeah. Sexual assault is a crime. And whether it, it, it was accidental or the, your worst day and you never do it again, it's a crime. And that, like you say, it's a, all about the punishment is going to be stronger, yeah. stronger or more lenient based on the person's character and their prior history of whatever. If, if they are a genuinely good person, everyone deserves redemption if it really is out of yeah, something that, for sure. that they regret strongly and all that sort of stuff. So. For sure. Mm. And in the sentencing, um, the context of sentencing, you also get to write a victim impact statement, right, if you're the victim. So you get, yeah, he gets a chance to, you know, bring in the character witness to say he's, he's a good guy, but you also get to bring evidence forward saying, hey, this has really affected me. Yeah. And it was really horrible and it did X, Y, Z. You don't actually get to talk about that in the court case. Mm. So... Um, you don't get to talk about the impact on you in any way, really. So um, so it's a much more appropriate place for that to happen. In in the context of deciding whether someone's guilty or not, it's unbelievably irrelevant, <laughs> like just deeply. And I think that if anybody gets asked to go to court in that context, they should be asking, is this for sentencing or is this to decide if you're guilty or not? And mm. if it's the latter, don't do it. Mm. Like just don't do it, even if it's someone so important to you. Don't do yeah. it, and and it doesn't matter if you think that they're really progressive or they care about consent or whatever. Like, the, don't do it. Say I'll do it for sentencing mm. if you're found guilty. Mm. And then the other thing, and I'm not sure this is this is like a a bit too diffuse to kind of say that it's a it's a specific specific thing to do, but. I think we need to create more spaces for people who got not guilty verdicts to speak mm. because I honestly don't hear that voice mm. in the media. You mostly hear people who haven't got yet gone to court or have gone to court and then something's happened that's important, like so, for instance, Saxon Mullins, right, got a guilty verdict, then it was overturned in appeal mm. because she'd written her number in his book or whatever and and said something particular and then you know then there's this big conversation about consent around that case but she got a guilty verdict first right so she feels that she can speak about it 
And I think people who get not guilty verdicts, at most you get the per, if the person who's been accused of the crime is being public about it, which in my case that the person has not been, so I can't talk about it freely. They, you get them gloating that justice has been served. Yeah, and then everyone going, "Oh, good! I'm so glad! I'm so glad!" I saw that happen the other day with someone I I knew, and obviously disconnected from immediately because mm-hmm. I just thought, "No, I don't believe you." I'm sorry, like this person that's put themselves through that court case. I don't know why she would have done that. Why would she do that? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know her, but why would she do that? Mm. There seems to be no obvious reason for it. So unless there's a reason for it, I'm not going to believe you. I'm sorry. And then, yeah, it was it was very telling to me that the DPP was not sure how to handle the non-publication order. And, in fact, even when they confirmed that I could speak, it was framed really oddly. It was that the non-publication order is against my own name but nobody else's name. Mm. So could I speak about my experiences because that would be naming me mm. as a Grace Tame thing, right? So it wasn't clear and the DPP said in writing that they would not they would not take action against me if I did, but they weren't sure about other publishers. Mm. So I have to give, so this is me giving you explicit permission to name me in, in uh in the context of the court case. They told me I have to say that for everything, yeah. every person that I speak to, right? Mm. That puts you in this really awkward position and also defamation law needs to be reformed, right? Unfortunately, mm. we've got Christian Porter reforming it. But um, that's the threat of defamation. That needs to be removed so that people who had these experiences can speak. I don't know how to remove that. I don't know how it would ever be removed. Mm. But... There needs to be safe spaces for people to speak about this mm. because because it just destroys you. Um, a story untold, you know. What's that Maya Angelou quote? That's about a story untold, like that it's this big burden. Yeah. Um, yeah, that if you feel like not only could I not speak beforehand because it could affect my case, but I couldn't speak after because I lost my case, mm. so I can never speak. And, and to be honest, I think it's less about the guy now. I think it's more about, for me at least, it's about the system that mm. enables someone like him. In regards to helping, like, other women come forward and stuff, the only thing I can do is give them support. I don't know if if my case really – I feel like after after getting the not guilty verdict, I would not encourage most people to go to the police. Mm. I think that changed. Mm. I think we get told to go to the police a lot, just report it, just report it. We need more people to report. But when there's so little chance of actually being successful in that report, why? Mm. Why should we report it? Yeah, without fixing the system first. Yeah, all it does, well, if you end up in my position, you feel like people think that you're a liar. Mm. That's not good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it seems uh, counterintuitive, but um, if there's a brick wall and, you know, no, you can't, there's no way of pushing a hole in the brick wall, you're not going to tell people to run headlong into it. So we've got to dismantle the brick wall first. Yeah. Mm. And I don't, I know that some people in this space have, have then, 
argued, okay, we need, we need to set up alternative systems. And I think victim services is a version of that. Mm. Um, and that's nice. I mean, that's good short term. It's a Band-Aid. But ultimately, the criminal justice system should be able to handle these kinds of cases. Mm. And the fact that it doesn't is a problem. It's not just something we can just ignore and avoid. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I feel like the one good thing that's come out of this, apart from being able to speak and, you know, the more my voice is elevated as a person who got not, not guilty in yeah. that setting, I think that will encourage other people who also experienced that to speak. Mm. Apart from that, the one good thing that's for me is that for a long time I thought that the, what I did when I was 19 by making it a kind of social problem for the person who assaulted me mm. rather than going to the police, that that was the wrong thing. Mm. Like I, f- I felt like, oh, I'd let, you know, I'd let everyone down because he'd gone on to be horrible to other people too, you know, as expected. Um, and that, you know, I hadn't done what we're told women to do, which is go to the police and go through that process and whatever. Now I don't feel like I did the wrong thing at all. What I did was extremely effective. It got him out of the social group that I was in. It got him away from people that were close to me and it kept me safe. Mm. Mm. Whereas right now, I saw the person who assaulted me for the first time since the court case um, a couple of weeks ago, mm. and thankfully it was in a public place. Mm. Um, we had to walk past each just where we were, we had to walk past each other pretty closely, but I just looked the other direction. Mm. Um, but were I to chance upon him on a dark alley, you know, in the city, I would not, I would not feel safe at all. But if I saw the other guy, the guy that assaulted me when I was 19, I'd feel very confident. Like, I'd actually be like, you are probably afraid of me. You managed to shift the power balance in that respect. Yeah. 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 And whereas here I feel like I've lost any power that I had. My, As I said, my baritone solicitor, I mean, they've met up with me a couple of times since the case concluded when they're very busy, as I said, and they've explained as much as they can about the case and why things happened but also they've just really been enthusiastic about the possibility of me fighting for reform they are like 100% behind me and I know that there are other lawyers who are uh, speaking more publicly about that too Mm. um but they can't if if they weren't there I mean who would be fighting any of the cases Mm. Uh, I I think they're as much like unwilling participants in a in a futile war as anybody else actually. Yeah. Um yeah. I and I th- I wish that um that the police get better at explaining why they're asking difficult questions, why they're asking why they're putting you on the spot immediately, why they're discouraging you because if because it was explained to me because I asked. Mm. Because they didn't let that kind of stuff just sit I'm like why why are you being so direct with me what what's that about like you know I, I just asked about it um I mean that's it's such a huge thing to work yourself up to go to give a report like when I first spoke to that original police officer who was such an idiot um he he wanted me to explain what happened in a public area like you know how you go into a police station and they've just got the yeah. um, flexi screens and it's but he wanted me to explain it right there 
And I was like, oh, it's a little private. Uh, but then I just started. He was like, oh, okay, we'll go in a room. And whilst he was sorting out whether the room was free or not, I almost walked out. Yeah. Like I, I didn't want to do that. Mm. And I feel like from what I've seen in terms of just, you know, kind of conversations on Facebook, not just my personal ones, but on different groups and things that a lot of survivors or victims feel very disempowered by the police. If they're not well-versed in people skills and empathy and, and all that sort of stuff, <laughs> that, that part of the system's broken before you even get into the system being broken. It's, 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 None of it, none of it seems to make any sense. But um, and I'm it gets sure. worse when you're at the police station you're going to doesn't have a specific sexual assault person, right? So the two that I went to, Newtown and Surrey Hills, they're big police stations. They've got lots of police officers, so they have dedicated police officers, kind of like you know SVU. <laughs> they they have a dedicated police officer that deals with those particular crimes, and they they were all wonderful. Yeah, um, but. If, you, if I just went up to, you know, where I live in the mountains like, and I went up to the local police station here, I would not find they have someone that's specifically for that case, those cases. And given we know that sexual assault, domestic violence rather, is, has a higher prevalence in, term, in, in the police force than it does elsewhere, I mean, you, you might be getting an abuser I mean, there's a really good chance that the first person you speak to is this someone is something that people, Yeah, this is something that people are, uh, I don't know if I've just been living in a hole or it is something that people are generally speaking up about a lot more ever since the, com- the conversation about defunding the police and uh, all this sort of stuff sort of came about seemed to be at the same time as people were saying uh, police are amongst um, the higher end of perpetrators of domestic violence and sexual assault and stuff. So it's not an easy job by any stretch of the imagination and I have a lot of gratitude and sympathy for people who go into these kind of occupations. But for every person that goes into any vocation, not being vocational about it, um, you know, there's there's so much damage in that. There's nurses. I've, I've been bullied by nurses in hospitals and stuff, mm. and others are angels walking on the earth. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, exactly. Well, I, I just admire your courage from the get-go just in doing the, the, the thing, doing the hard thing. At first trying to confront your abuser in the first place to try and get them to um, face up to what had happened and and admit admit to you that they crossed the line and and stuff. So it seems to me like there's you did what you felt was right, but also it's like he unwittingly pushed you that way by the way he responded to any attempt that you made to give him the opportunity to to make it right with you. One of the things that came up in court was that he was a member of what he was calling, he and his barrister were calling an accountability group, that he was talking it through with some female friends and that they were holding him to account and stuff. And that's all nice, but firstly, why would you be in an accountability group if you didn't think you committed a crime? Mm. But um, secondly, like 
why was I not ever approached? Yeah. I, th- I think his idea of making it right was always to sideline me, mm. to make it about him. Mm. Um, and, and, I, and you see this happen. It's the kind of Davo stuff that Jess Hill talks about where you um, deny, accuse, um, and then change the order of the victim. Um that stuff. So, so he's done a lot of the changing the order of the victim mm. Mm. and framing himself as a victim in this. And and all the people who stood up for him in court probably do think that at some level he is a victim, mm. um, which, you know, maybe he's a victim of life, mm. but I'm a victim of his actions. Yeah. You know, what I, one of the other things I'd like to say for anyone who has, who might listen, who has had a not guilty verdict, first of all, like, it's not your fault. You're not, you didn't not do enough. Like, you're not defective or you haven't let anyone down. The system has let you down. But also, if, if there is any situation in which you're starting to feel empathy for the person who, you know, assaulted you, mm-hmm. then stop. Mm-hmm. Like, stop and I understand the necessity to see both sides of the situation and it's beautiful that we can have empathy for other people but if that person didn't actually take responsibility for what they did they don't deserve empathy Mm. yeah because so many opportunities my abuser had to own what he did Mm. and he didn't and he Mm. continues to not do it Mm. yeah yeah it's uh it's human nature uh, to to do what we've been programmed to do in regards to taking the blame for any number of reasons why people assault or take advantage of us. I'm trying to keep it neutral, gender neutral in that regard, but it's but it's so it's. Uh, it's, it feels like we're being gagged um, from the obvious, like we can't state the obvious because it's so obvious. It's, you know, it's scary. It's scary the, the fact that, you know, everything seems to point to the fact that not only is the system broken, the reason why it's broken and it's because we as a society have all bought into the reasons why it's broken and that's why you're now saying don't feel empathy. Like you feel like anybody on the face of it would think, well, why would they feel empathy? It's because we've been trained. We've been programmed to to have empathy for, for people who do things that are out of character for them for whatever reason or whatever, but there's still <laughs> no self-preservation in that. <clears throat> there's no sense of, you know, putting, um, yeah. like, making your feelings in any way matter. So, yeah, yeah so exactly. I, I, I'm so glad that you uh, are okay. Yeah, I just really appreciate <laughs> you giving me the opportunity to talk to you. Um, and oh, no, thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, I'll uh, do whatever I can to get some more attention to the things that we don't know enough about the things that we don't understand about the system. It's not good enough to say things don't result in a conviction and just give statistics. We have to talk about why. Why? Yeah. 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 Everything's about why. Yeah. Mm. It is.
All right. Well, well have a lovely evening. So that's how that went. You may notice that there was a little bit of laughter escaping from my lips several times during the interview. That's incredulity. That's me being shocked and amazed. That's me being uncomfortable and angry and all of the things. So it probably comes across as jarring, but I've got a feeling that people who have experienced sexual abuse or any kind of injustice, probably recognised those moments when I burst into spontaneous laughter, and Gemma did as well. It's not a funny conversation by any stretch of the imagination. So please, guys, cats and kittens, do me a favour. Please pass this particular podcast around to anybody you know who might be able to draw attention to the cause of changing legislation and changing the way we do things, changing court procedure and what evidence is and is not admissible. I'm not sure what's coming up next time, so I'm not going to preempt that. Please follow me on Instagram. Check out my website on theeloquentintheroom.com. I should probably pop a blog post on there. It's been a while since I've updated. I would like to do a bit of a survey of listeners and see how you guys are travelling. And um, that blog post will tell you how I've been travelling. I've been really, really busy creatively apart from falling apart. I've been really, really full on creatively as I alluded to a couple of podcast episodes ago. I do have a song that is coming out. The date for that release is May 9th, which is Mother's Day. And there's a reason for that. Give yourselves a big hug for me. Check the show notes for links to how to get in contact with Gemma and also how to get in contact with anybody if you need to talk to anybody about anything that you've experienced at any time during your life. It's never too late or too early to talk about your pain. Love you. Talk to you soon.